1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about food science, consciously feeding ourselves to optimize health and healing. All righty then, let's get to it. My first guest is Dr. Rupi Aujla a medical doctor specialized in general practice. He is a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle changes to heal and prevent illnesses and wants to make healthy lifestyle enjoyable and deliciously acceptable and accessible to everyone. He is the founder of the culinary medicine, a nonprofit in the United kingdom and is the author of The Doctor's Kitchen. And we're talking about this book today, Eat to Beat Illness, 80 Simple Delicious Recipes Inspired by the Science of Food as Medicine. Welcome, Rupi. Thanks for joining us on the show today.
2: Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I am eager to just get on with it and talk with you about setting up a lifestyle, a way of eating which supports strong brain, heart, eyes, bones, blood, lungs, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, one of the reasons, I suppose the um, the inspiration behind the book was the podcast uh, that I started a couple of years ago where we discussed in, individual topics about eating for your heart, eating for your brain. And it became really popular and people wanted a little bit more information on it. So, I decided to just write the whole book on it. My first book was really about how we need to take nutrition seriously. It's kind of like a manifesto, whereas this book is kind of like the blueprint that shows people how they can improve their well-being today by looking at the nutrition science behind brain health, eye health, immune health, and dissecting it in ways that give people tangible ideas about what kind of foods can help with that, as well as the lifestyle practices. But in the final chapter, I invite users that, or readers to, to zoom out and really look at the similarities between eating for all those different things. And you realize it's all the same stuff. It's always the same. It's plant-focused. It's high-fiber diets. It's lots of variety, lots of quality fats and eating in time. And when you apply those principles, you are naturally going to be looking after all different aspects of your well-being, your brain health, your eye health, Because your body intuitively knows how to look after itself if you give it the right tools, the right fuel. And so eat to beat illness is really my desire to improve people's knowledge and and help people along the way and show people how you can amplify your defenses uh, ever getting ill in the first place.
1: And when we talk about eating to beat illness or eating to maintain high quality health, You're talking about not just Mm -hmm. the, the body and the systems, but also our emotional life, about how we think and feel.
2: Yes, exactly. You know, one of the chapters is all about nutritional psychiatry, which is how we can use food as an adjunct to traditional therapies that we have. There's a really interesting movement going on in the psychiatry field where we're recognizing, you know, food isn't just fuel. Food is going to be feeding your microbiota, your specialized microbes in your gut that release nutrients from your food. They digest uh, different sorts of and release micronutrients as well as digesting food for us. They create neurotransmitters. They balance inflammation. There's a whole world of different activities that this population does, and one of which is actually improving our mood, uh, and one of the reasons why improving your diet can actually have tangible benefits on mental health issues.
1: And when we talk about improving our mood, we're not talking about having a, a sweet treat that gives us that instant boost or that instant elevation. We're talking about using <laughs> high-quality foods, right, to to change Absolutely, brain yeah. chemistry.
2: Absolutely, yeah. There's, there's lots of different ways in which we can use lifestyle practices to change our brains, whether that be talking therapy, whether it be stress reduction, uh, stress reduction therapies, and whether that be food as well, the types of food that we associate with uh, uh, principles of healthy eating, so colours, fibers, quality fats, omega three fats and, and this is all fascinating for me because it just gives us another clinical tool in our toolbox to, to help patients along the way without just relying on pharmaceuticals and other interventions that we have, and they' are just as important. But, you know, we need to put a bit more focus on the diet and lifestyle that's traditionally been left aside.
1: Let's talk about specific foods and their impact. For example, what are some of the foods that will make us happier besides sugar and alcohol?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, certainly there are foods that will give us that dopamine rush. And unfortunately, sugar and salt combinations are one of those, but those are ones that you don't really want to rely on, and the types of foods that I'm talking about are really for the long-term benefits of your general well-being and your mental health. And so, specific foods I would say are the beans, legumes, um, the different sorts of uh, high-fiber foods that we have access to, uh, and we know nurture that microbiota population. It's quality fats in the form of uh, nuts, like walnuts, and and um, hazelnuts, but also uh, small fish, so mackerel and uh, Uh sardines, anchovies, they all contain those long-chain fatty acids that we know that are integral for brain health uh, as well as improving our mood. And also uh, getting complexity and variety of culinary herbs, They're, they're fantastic sources of different micronutrients and phytonutrients that we find in plants. And when you consume those, uh, you know it adds to the added complexity of your food that improves your microbiota and actually can have direct impact on your cells.
1: So are there specific herbs that are advantageous for our mental health or mood elevation? And I don't mean in a recreational sense, I mean in a yeah. culinary sense.
2: <laughs> yeah, in a culinary sense, again, it comes down to variety, but specifically there have been some uh, studies looking at saffron, Lavender mm. and off the top of my head, I think a cumin may have been one of them. Although I'm not too sure of the efficacy of those. But to be honest, rather than using food prescriptively or like a pill, I prefer to look at your diet holistically and try to get as many different types of those different categories in. So when it comes to herbs, you know, rather than relying on things like ashwagandha or ginkgo or um, you know things that you can find in supplemental form, actually adding herbs like basil, rosemary, thyme. It can be just as impressive when it comes to adding complexity to your food, and mm-hmm. that's really where the 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 focus should be
1: so let's talk about some of the best all around foods that support multiple systems within the body that you would recommend. A patient comes in and says, I want to step up my game with my health or I've been feeling you know weak, tired, or that even if they have some diagnoses that they want to support with culinary medicine
2: yeah, I mean so. The way I like to start a consultation like that is ask them what they like. Um, you know, if they like oats, great. If they don't like oats, I'm not going to recommend oats. Mm. Uh, the kind of ways in which I try and dissect what people would want to eat is by asking them what their favorite kind of meals are, uh, what kind of cuisines they like. Do they like Chinese? Uh, do they like Middle Eastern food? Do they like British cuisine, American cuisine? How can we make uh, a, a burger that's actually got tons more fiber in it's actually one of the things that we do in coloring medicine, which is a nonprofit, um, that we started a couple of years ago. We try and ascertain what the patient's able to do in terms of healthy behavior changes and then make it personalized to them because there's no point in me just saying have kale salads, have one that's have pears if they're not going to do it. Uh, and unfortunately that's the case in a lot of people. So rather than bombarding people with, you know, you need to get these ingredients, you need to buy this, you need to stock that it's It's about collaborating with them in front of you and trying to figure out how what's the best next step for them.
1: Is there any generalized food that you say you should have some of this every day? If you do one thing,
2: yeah, I would say if you, if you do one thing, I would say get a variety of different greens in your diet. Um, and greens can come in the in a multitude of different forms. broccoli, uh, arugula, uh, different sorts of uh, leaves, uh, spinach. You know, it's pretty fascinating just how many different chemicals you find in them, yes, but also the impact on uh, different states, um, inflammation states, immune states, your gut. It's really impressive. So I try and get greens in that every mealtime personally.
1: So greens are the go-to food prescription for everybody regardless. It's then finding the green that appeals to you that you can tolerate at a minimum and enjoy at a maximum.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, a hack that I always use is I finely chop spinach and I throw that in at the end of a meal, uh, whether I'm making a stew, a casserole, a curry, uh, because the the residual heat will wilt them and uh, it just increases the nutrient density of your meal effortlessly.
1: Uh, yeah. And, and it's yummy. I, I happen to like spinach. Let's go take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Rupi Ajla. We're talking about his book, Eat to Beat Illness, 80 Simple Delicious recipes inspired by the science of food as medicine. To learn more, please visit the doctorskitchen.com, on Twitter at doctors underscore kitchen on Facebook the doctor's Kitchen and on Instagram doctors underscore kitchen. Here comes the break We'll be right back and that is a promise.
0: To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com. And explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
1: back talking about food science, food as medicine. How do we consciously feed ourselves to optimize our health and healing? Let's get back to the conversation with my guest, Dr. Rupi Aujla. So Rupi, prior to the break, we talked about the best all around food that you recommend. And you tell us that we should eat green, find the green that we like and eat lots of it. What about superfoods? Is that really a thing?
2: Yeah, so superfoods are actually a marketing term. It doesn't really come up in the literature at all. There's a term called functional foods, but superfoods is completely made up. Um, and in all honesty, I really do believe that all foods deserve a super status because even your humble carrot, your simple red cabbage, your peas, your aubergines they all have incredible, incredible benefits to our health. When taken as part of a healthy diet, you know, somebody asked me, you know, if you had a choice of five different ingredients at the salad bar or one superfood item, be that, I don't know, kale or uh, something of that nature, what would you choose? And always the choice should be as many different variety of ingredients, not just one plate of one food. And I think we need to be a little bit more mindful of that, actually, and actually teach people that it's not about singular ingredients, it's about getting as much complexity, because we are complex beings that require different nutrients and different sources.
1: I'm giggling because I'm a kale lover myself. And, (laughs) uh, but you know, there is such a thing is too much of a good thing can be a bad thing because I gave myself a kidney stone from eating so much kale. So, I mean, you know, we need (laughs) to be, uh, we need to be aware, you know, that, that if we're eating so much of one thing that that actually undermines the body's balance.
2: Absolutely. It's like, you know, someone who hears that fiber is really good for them and they just eat a ton of fiber and then they'll get the horrendous abdominal cramps from that because your body A is probably not used to it, but B, you shouldn't be having it that much quantity. So whenever I somebody asks me about certain ingredients or whatever, I always say, look, there's two things you want to ask yourself. What's the quality of your ingredient and what's the dose? So you can apply that to anything, like whether it's water, whether you're talking about animal products, whether you're talking about greens, what's the quality of the ingredient and how much am I meant to be eating of it? And I think, you know, once we become a lot more intuitive about those honest questions, we can actually lead ourselves to be a lot more healthy, effortlessly, rather than trying to Mimic what other people are doing.
1: I like the word dose that you use because it goes back to using food as medicine, that when we think about how we make our food choices, when we talk about dosing ourselves, you would not want to overdose yourself on anything.
2: Absolutely. Including water. You know, yes. there's a safe limit. There's a, there's, you know, an unsafe limit and the unsafe limit is too little or too much the safe limit is in between, which is around 1.5 to 2.5 liters per day of clean water. And, and the same thing goes for everything, really. So yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because I, I use the word dose not to medicalize or make food sound clinical, but just to give people an understanding of, you know what, this is chemistry. Yes. And when we're dealing with chemicals, you need to think about, uh, you need to think about it within these parameters.
1: Let's talk about red meat. There's been so much in the media telling us that we should reduce our red meat intake. And for that matter, all animal animal protein sources should be reduced, except these good, small, fatty fish that you mentioned in the in the last segment. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about yeah. that. What's your opinion on red meats?
2: So I think overall, my opinion of animal products is the same for red meat. It's treat them as luxury items. Treat them as items that we would have traditionally cherished. So as hunter-gatherers, we wouldn't have had steaks and meat products every single day. It just wouldn't have happened because we, you had to hunt them, you had to prepare them, you had to preserve them. They're a prized, prized commodity. And we would have been surviving mainly off plants. That's the reality of the situation. And so when we have the excess of all the different animal products that we have today, it's no wonder that we're getting ill because our bodies aren't actually designed to deal with this much meat. And so when it comes to the red meat equation, you know, these new papers that have come out have said that red meat is completely fine, it's harmless. It's in complete contradiction Mm. to what the WHO says. So I think we need to be really careful about headline papers and actually how much and the quality of the evidence that is used for those as well. So I'm clear with my position, which is treat meat items like a luxury item if you choose to eat them at all, but focus on the things that we know are helpful and that Quality plants, lots of fiber, lots of quality fats, um, and a plant-focused diet.
1: I love the terminology luxury item, to use the animal protein as a luxury item, and it makes complete sense. You know, we don't feel good in general if we are overdosing ourselves on animal protein.
2: Yeah. I mean, everyone can, can relate to that time when they've eaten too much or, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. And, you know, like it, it impacts your digestive system hugely. And, you know, when people transition to a hundred percent plant based diet, it's no wonder they feel great if they've, if they've transitioned from a diet that was very heavy in animal products, because it's, it's going to, it's going to zap your energy. <laughs> Uh, digesting all that food so you know and that isn't a, an advert for going 100% vegan because I think that some people do need meat in their diet and some people thrive on 100% plant-based diets other people don't so again it comes down to that intuitiveness of like what's right for you what's right for the individual what's right for the patient
1: um, let's touch upon the connection between good nutrition and cancer prevention and treatment of cancer
2: Mm, yeah. So I wrote the chapter and it was probably the hardest chapter it was to write because I never want people to think it's their fault for having cancer. And I also, you know, I don't want to give people the impression that you can eat your way out of cancer. We have therapies for a reason. And I, you know, there's a lot of people peddling um, treatments using juices and, and all that kind of stuff and actively telling people to, sh- to shy away from conventional therapy. And I think that it's a very, very dangerous thing. And that's why traditionally doctors have not been very keen to get involved in the nutrition conversation because of this taboo. So what I would to do is actually just go for the evidence. And, and the NIH have actually uh, listed a couple of foods um, like turmeric, ginger, uh, garlic that we know have anti-cancer benefits. And really when you look at the big studies and the associations of cancer and, and uh, diet. We know the more plants you have in the diet, the less likely cancer is to arise. And that can be from a number of reasons, like, you know, the greens that we talked about, the variety, the impact on the microbiome, um, all these different factors. So the more plants, the better. And I think that's the overriding message um, that I I had from that chapter, as well as all the other lifestyle measures like exercise, yoga, stress reduction techniques. These all can protect us against this debilitating condition that unfortunately, one in two of us will will come into contact with.
1: I think that what we're also talking about is the reduction of inflammation, right? That this type of culinary medicine reduces inflammation in the body, which then reduces the risk of the cancer.
2: Yeah, so inflammation is another topic I spent a whole chapter talking about because it underpins so many different chronic diseases of our time. It's also probably one of the least understood concepts as well, because inflammation in our body is essentially the reason why we've been able to evolve and survive through harsh climates and harsh terrain, because we've been able to develop an immune system that can fight infections, can clot our blood, can deal with external and internal stresses by releasing inflammation. But it's the excess of inflammation. That is underpinning a lot of what we see, one of which is cancer, but also high blood pressure, diabetes, even mental health issues can be attributed to an excess of inflammation in the blood that crosses into the brain causing its impact uh, on mental health. So yeah, the excess of inflammation and trying to treat that with plant focused diet, anti inflammatory molecules in the, in the form of herbs and spices, uh, as well as improving our gut microbiota is, is something that is going to definitely reduce uh, inflammation and also protect us from uh, cancer as well.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your global journey with the recipes in the book because the recipes that you have created and shared are by no means boring. They are rich in taste and color. And personally, I am after the Sri Lankan cashew curry because I'm (laughs) I'm a lover of spice. Talk a little bit. Brilliant. Yeah, Uh,
2: I love experimenting with different cuisines and that's really part of my experience working in the NHS where we come into contact with so many different people from different backgrounds, whether it be Chinese, Middle Eastern, French, Indian, you know, you name it, we have them here in the UK and London and, you know, making healthy eating accessible to all has to be reflective of different people's cultures. And also I think there's so much to celebrate. With our global community, and the way we do that is with shared experiences around a table. And I I can't think of anything more enjoyable than creating a a beautiful Sri Lankan curry, or a Korean stir fry vegetable dish, or you know the Cajun sweet potato breakfast dish that I've got in there. You know, there's there's so many different ways in which we can enjoy uh, the cultural aspects and the beauty of food, as well as the health giving benefits as well.
1: Well, your book is a winner. We're talking about Eat to Beat Illness, 80 simple, delicious recipes inspired by the science of food as medicine. My guest, who I want to thank for hanging out with me is Dr. Rupi Ajla. And to learn more about Rupi's work and the nonprofit, which is culinary medicine, right? Go to the on Twitter at doctors underscore kitchen on Facebook, the doctor's kitchen and on Instagram, doctors underscore kitchen rupi tell us a little bit about
2: the podcast when new episodes drop oh sure so the podcast comes out uh, every week uh, we've done about 30 episodes thus far we've had so many downloads i think it's over two million now and uh, it's a great way of sharing information with me just chatting with another nutrition person or someone who has an interest in it and uh, you getting to listen along
1: wonderful so tune in and is the show also called eat to beat illness the show is called The Doctor's Kitchen. The Doctor's Kitchen. Fantastic. Thanks for hanging yeah. out with me and thanks for making this book. The recipes are awesome and I recommend them. Go out and cook yourself to better health. <laughs> thanks, Rupee.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that.
1: We're going to take that pause and we will be right back.
0: That is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive and make better partners parents and professionals connect with us on facebook at harvesting happiness and follow lisa on twitter at lisa cayman for a daily dose of inspiration
1: Are back, continuing the conversation about food science. How do we use food as medicine to heal ourselves, to make conscious choices for ourselves, our families, and our planet? My next guest is doing just that, Sophie Egan. She is a Stanford lecturer and New York Times contributor, whose work at the Culinary Institute of America and now with her own agency. Full Table Solutions has galvanized a nationwide movement. Sophie's mission is to help all of us make healthier, more sustainable food choices. She holds a master's degree from the University of California at Berkeley with a focus on health and social behavior. Sophie, welcome. What a time for us to be getting together. Indeed. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure. So many of us have a lot of time on our hands. We are in quarantine, a good portion of the country, not all of us yet anyways. And there's a lot of opportunity in this new world that we are living in to make some really good and conscious new choices for the way we feed ourselves. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your book, how to be a conscious eater, making food choices that are good for you, others and the planet.
3: Absolutely. Uh, so in the book, I provide that three-part framework that you just mentioned, and it's really meant to be a mental checklist, how to evaluate foods as worth bringing home with you or not, and ultimately putting in your body. And really, the goal is to both broaden the uh, set of, of perspectives that you have when when making a food choice. Not only is it good for you and your own well-being and nutrition, but how does it affect the animals and people affected throughout the food supply that goes from farm to fork, and then also is it good for the planet? How much of a water or carbon footprint does it have? What amount of natural resources does it have involved? And so with that three-part framework, it's also though meant to help navigate complexity. There is so much confusion about what to eat. Understandably, uh, eight in ten Americans report being confused about what to eat, and two-thirds of them doubt their choices as a result of that. So the goal with the book is really to empower readers to make food choices that all of us can feel good about. And especially now with the coronavirus, as you mentioned, and what I call corona-conscious eating.
1: Yes, corona-conscious eating. Let's talk a little bit about uh, provisioning our pantries because many of us have you know, geared up for this thing to remain in place for a period of time. And I know as I uh, walked through the grocery aisles and I made my selections online because I did a combination of both, I was paying attention Mm -hmm. to the nutritional value of what I was buying.
3: That's great. And I I think that's an interesting outcome of this crisis is that folks are paying a bit more attention maybe than they were before. That might be be because uh, we're more concerned about using uh, our food choices to boost our immune systems. That might be because there's less availability. And so we're having to, to make some harder choices than maybe our default our automated choices from the past. And then a lot of folks are cooking for the first time or for the first time in a while, or maybe they're just cooking more than they were before. So when it comes to a healthy pantry, a couple of key things. Above all, there's really a spectrum in terms of processing. So we want to be looking for foods that nourish our our whole selves and comfort food, but junk food by and large is is uh, actually undermining our efforts to uh, stay healthy. What I mean by that is that added sugar in particular um, is actually tied to inflammation and can be uh, a real problem from, from a, an immune system standpoint. The other thing to keep in mind is that Fresh produce, which is bountiful still in grocery stores um, and, and safe, uh, officials tell us from a coronavirus standpoint, uh, is um, it fresh or really any form of produce, it's the number one thing we could probably be eating um, from a vitamin and antioxidant standpoint, eating the whole rainbow, um, and then also thinking about fiber-rich foods, which produce has, as well as whole grains, legumes, nuts, plant oils like olive oil and others. Those are great items and certainly belong in a healthy pantry. And Generally speaking, the takeaway is that what's best for us and the planet is mostly plant-based foods. That does not mean you need to be vegan or vegetarian by any stretch. It just means the vast majority of your pantry will hopefully come from the plant kingdom, or as I say in the book, will be stuff that comes from the ground. Um, that covers a lot of the territory right there in itself. And then at the same time, though, really looking at ways to keep not only ourselves, really as, as healthy as possible, but using our food choices that we are being more conscious about right now to align with our values. So do we, if you care about your local and regional economies, there are lots of ways to to do that. Um, small businesses, restaurants also need our support. Um, so we can certainly dig into some other ways there to be Corona conscious um, outside of our pantries. I
1: love that Corona conscious. But one of the things that I I'm fortunate that I live in an area where I have access to a lot of fresh vegetables and and fresh farm eggs. But I'm also thinking for those of us who don't have access um to that mm-hmm. kind of, of of fresh fare. What are some things that we can put in our pantries? I'm thinking like, how are dried fruits because they satisfy also mm-hmm. the sweet mm-hmm. tooth, you know?
3: Yeah, great question. Honestly, uh, when I think about that Middle bucket in the in the three part checklist of others right now. Some of the folks I'm most concerned about right now are the 40 million food insecure or or hungry Americans. Uh, and this is all before the crisis hit, when we have kids who are not able to get their meals in schools, which we know is a huge source of hunger relief for for millions of families. This is a real a real issue, and so really relates your question in terms of food access. So some of the key ways to, to, from a budget standpoint to really still eat in ways that are good for us, not only our pantries, but freezers. So frozen fruits and vegetables um, are a great option. They last forever. Loving your freezer is generally a good rule of thumb for economizing and for avoiding waste, which are critically important. Dried fruit you mentioned is is great so long as it doesn't have added sugar. That's a, a key point. Another thing is on the fresh side, one of the ways to economize, is to buy seasonally because the, the types of fruit produce that are in season tend to be more affordable so those are some good uh, options for eating in ways that are more affordable another is buying in bulk so maybe there's some fears around packaging and, and you know reusability sort of bringing your own containers but the bulk section is really where um, not only can you be more eco-conscious, but you have tons of savings um, to be had in the bulk section versus buying packaged food. So whether that's um, for oats or granola or uh, beans and um, and and nuts, those are great ways for, for healthy snacks um, and healthy staples uh, to really economize and uh, avoid packaging.
1: I love that suggestion. Let's talk about reading labels of packaged foods and maybe explaining to the listeners the differences uh, or subtle differences between GMO and non GMO uh, packaging, because that's an area where people are a little confused, I think.
3: Sure. So uh, in the book, I, I actually don't get into GMOs too much because it's one of those areas where a, the book is really driven by scientific consensus, because one of the frustrations people have is this study says coffee is good and that study says coffee's bad. And what do I believe? And I just want to throw up my hands and I, I don't know what to make of it all. Right. So I really focus on the areas that where there's strong scientific consensus. And so GMOs in particular area, there's a little bit more debate going on. But in terms of labels, great question. Overall, there are so many labels to contend with that consumers are often left scratching their heads and for good reason. My shorthand for evaluating packaged foods is as follows. Think about the food in the package. Think about the words on the package and the packaging itself the food in the package we talk about we talked about that a bit in terms of words a lot of the claims on packages natural all natural etc are just um marketing and the front of a package generally is uh, essentially a billboard for the product all the real nutrition facts panel information the ingredients list those are the boring black and white parts on the side or on the back that's where you're really going to understand the quality from a nutrition standpoint And then there are quite a few third-party certifications out there. I described those in the book um, that do have some merit. For example, the whole grains council stamp can actually help you determine which products have sufficient product uh, quantities of whole grains in them. Uh, Fair trade is another example. So knowing which ones have meaning and which ones don't can be very helpful.
1: This is very, very helpful. Um, Let's talk about um, sell by dates because in my family, you know, particularly the kids who are young adults, if they see that milk is one day beyond the stamp, they are, they're not having it. And I know that that is <laughs> in part truth, but there's some leeway. Tell us about it.
3: Yes, this is a huge source of confusion. And rightly so, because in reality, there are, are you know, a half dozen different versions sell by best if used by used by um, and so forth. And it gives us the sense that it means this food is not going to be safe. It's past this date that it expires after that date that is not the case sell by and other dates are not about food safety they're about quality standards for the for the most part so what it means is that the majority of the time you can indeed eat foods past those dates sometimes the food actually will start to grow mold before the date and this is where we need two things we need to be empowered to return to sort of our common sense using our senses Do I see mold with my eyes? Do I, does the milk smell off, (laughs) right? What are the other ways we can actually detect signs of the food, you know, no longer being safe for consumption? And then also where can you save, for which items can you actually save the rest of the product, cutting off, you know, the mold from the hard cheese, for instance. Um, And then the other piece we need is there is legislation underway to actually um, make this easier for everybody by having a simply a two label scheme. One would be about quality and one would be about safety, and that would make the biggest difference and, and settle some of those arguments that not only you and, and your family, but countless other families are having.
1: And what I like about what you've just shared is it does help cut down on waste. You know, if those eggs have an expiration date on the carton or the milk or the yogurt or the cheese, and th- what about meat? I mean, meat, you're saying use your common sense. If it smells fresh,
3: it's fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so the food waste piece is the biggest reason this is such a, a crisis. I mentioned, you know, we have huge numbers of people going hungry but the flip side of that too is we have uh food waste is the third most minimizing food waste is the third most effective solution for reversing global warming wasting food is a huge source of emissions it's a real uh, crisis in itself especially during a time of what could be you know when people are stocking up and we're trying to 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 make food last as long as possible but it's always been been really something that's very, very important for us and a huge opportunity for us to address. So this better safe than sorry mentality that we just chuck the whole thing of milk in, in the garbage can is uh, is no longer a, a tenable approach, in my opinion. And I think that uh, having a better understanding of, of trusting your senses and which products Save the dot com is a great resource in the book I described to Dana Gunders, a f- fantastic book um, that goes deep into this on every item. Which ones can you freeze? Which ones can you save? Which ones can you, you know, chop into pieces? You, she suggests you can even scramble eggs and, and milk um, ahead of time and then freeze those. Uh, so she's got a lot of good uh, resources in the Waste Free Kitchen Handbook and, and I have quite a few shorthands as well in the book for getting the most out of out of the food that we do have because it's a luxury.
1: Uh, We're very, very fortunate to uh, have plentiful food in this country. That is for sure. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll return to the conversation with Sophie Egan to learn more about Sophie's work and her book, How to Be a Conscious Eater, Making Food Choices That Are Good for You, Others, and the Planet. Please visit sophieegan.com on Twitter at SophieEganM. Here comes the break. We'll be right back.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker. Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day. Regardless of external circumstances, explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit harvestinghappiness.com to learn more. Happiness,
1: yeah. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, I am speaking with Sophie Egan. She is the author of How to Be a Conscious Eater, making food choices that are good for you, others, and the planet. Let's get back to the conversation. Sophie, you've been giving us some really good tips of ways to stock up on our pantry, ways to read the labels. And understand the differences between the best buy dates and sell by dates, which I think is really, really helpful. There's a lot of confusion around that. Let's turn our attention to identifying foods that boost the immune system. In the earlier segment, you talked about the importance of fresh produce, fruits and vegetables, but I have a feeling there are more that we can add into the mix.
3: Yes, definitely. So we touched on fruits and vegetables, produce, because they are vitamin packed and have antioxidants, which are important from an inflammation standpoint. So eat the rainbow is something that a lot of registered dietitians are encouraging us to do. It's it's not only the citrus that has the vitamin C, for instance, um, but in terms of other things we can do from an immune system standpoint, um, I'm really interested in the power of the gut microbiome. So this is that thriving, healthy, good <laughs> but good bacteria that make up, our, that keep our digestive systems uh, working well, our metabolism humming. And there is a lot that suggests that it's tied to a healthy immune system as well. So how do you uh, feed your gut as it's called? Fiber. Fiber-rich foods are produce like we talked about, but also legumes, the humble, lentils, beans, etc., cetera, uh, as well as whole grains in particular. And then fermented foods. Um, so it's both prebiotics the fiber, just fiber-rich foods I just mentioned, and then probiotics. Those are actually the, the live cultures you might see you know, when you get yogurt or other uh, fermented foods like um, kefir, kimchi, um, sauerkraut. Those, that combination will really be key for uh, ensuring that thriving gut microbiome that is tied to, to a healthy immune system. And then the third step I would say that's important is to keep in mind any, how what you're eating or drinking might relate to sleep. Uh, so we know that enemies number one and two of immune system are sleep and stress. Um, interestingly, alcohol sort of goes in both directions. A quarantini can help take off the stress in the moment. Um, and certainly, you know, I think it provide provides, provide some, some social connection if you're doing it over zoom um, or FaceTime. Uh, but also it can uh, you know, if, if we're drinking too much, it can, it can disrupt sleep uh, and that deep sleep that we really need, especially now. So just keeping that in mind and, and looking at, um, you know, just being careful and mindful with with tea and coffee from a caffeine standpoint um, to protect sleep above all as much as possible uh, through the foods and beverages that we're consuming.
1: I'm so glad that you brought up sleep as part of this recipe because I think this is one of the things that I'm hearing. Not I think I know I'm hearing this from a lot of people that they are sleeping more than they than they usually are. Is we're in quarantine. And I think that is a collective upside of this whole situation, that people Mm -hmm. are becoming more rested than they have been in in years.
3: Mm, Absolutely. Well, that's really interesting to hear. I certainly hope so. I mean, I have a friend who who shared this notion of stewarding positivity throughout this time. and, And that's something I'm really eager to do with finding those silver linings. What are the habits we're finding that were, that are sort of the positive outcomes. There's so much darkness and gloom during this time. Um, sleeping more perhaps. I have noticed people cooking more, being, you know, eating is essential. And, and some folks are telling me this is the first time I've sat down with my family for dinner and for breakfast so regularly because so often food is an afterthought. It's, it's just something to do in the background, you know, fuel as you go about your busy day. And so really being more mindful in, in those ways that people maybe are reading more, cooking, you know, food related or not, <laughs> just reading more. Uh, so hopefully finding some other silver linings like that, um, but certainly sleep is a really interesting one. And, and, and looking to see which of these habits, you know, carry on past this crisis will be really interesting.
1: I love what you just shared about being a steward for positivity. That's what we do here on Harvesting Happiness every week. We have done that for <laughs> the past 10 years. We will continue to do that and more because I think the world needs some level of an optimism boost right now. Things are hard for a lot of mm-hmm. people and we mm-hmm. we do need to be like shepherds of good self-care and care and feeding of others. I mean, that's the thing I'm noticing also. There's a lot of Uh, food generosity going on. Someone's baking Mm -hmm. something, they're sharing it. You know, they're cooking something, they're sharing it. And I think that's really, really nice. We need to to do more of that in times that Mm -hmm. aren't so stressful because food is, is love, right?
3: Right, food is love. And the point you also mentioned too touches on a couple of interesting outcomes of this, which is that it's really showing... The interconnectedness and, and the way that, you know, community is kind of the buzzword but from a virus standpoint, but also from a social connectedness standpoint. And uh, in my last book, Devoured, actually talk a lot about the loss of social, social connectedness. I'm sure you've touched on that here as it's so linked with happiness and yes. longevity. And what's interesting is that even though we're in our, we're quarantined in our homes, in some ways people may, like you said, feel actually more connected. And with food, it's, it's a great point because it's really amazing to see some of the pivots too that, you know, restaurants that are are shifting to food pantries, essentially, for those food insecure folks because they're shut down, or schools and institutions that are now serving as kind of food rescue hubs and, and other um, outlets, So maybe they're ordering, offering prepared meals to go take out delivery. Uh, so thinking about others in this context that, you know, I mentioned Um, The food insecure, but also thinking, too, about all those in the food system who are affected, not only our neighbors and so forth, like you mentioned, but farmers um, who may have distribution channels cut off by not restaurants being closed, by schools and other institutions, the food service no longer being up and running. Restaurants themselves, there's uh, some hashtags encourage folks to check out, save restaurants, hashtag too small to fail. Also, small independent restaurants especially are really alarming uh, or sounding alarm bells about running the risk of extinction. And so it's really great some of these silver linings that we're seeing, but also thinking about will we have restaurants to return to as those places of social connection afterward? And if we want them to be around, um, really doing what we can um, to support, you know, support for them in the stimulus package.
1: One of my recent guests on the show was talking about how every other day she and her family are ordering takeout from a different local restaurant in their neighborhood that mm. they feel really responsible in the way that they can support as best they can, keeping these, these businesses going. And I think that when we, when we look at the food choices that we make, when we put in a takeout delivery order, just give a word or two about that because we can be mindful eaters. Mm-hmm. Even if we're buying takeout.
3: That's absolutely right. This is such an important topic. So one of the biggest things I like to point out is that, you know, delivery does not necessarily delivery and takeout does not necessarily mean just the, you know, the uh, break free budget over the top. But yeah, the free-for-all. It does not mean it's just like cheesy pizza night. It can be, and that's great, and we all need that. But it can also, there are so many delicious vegetable dishes on, like, think of every Chinese food menu you've ever seen or Indian food. I mean, there's, there's just an incredible diversity of of ways to enjoy produce from takeout menus. So that would be my my number one thing is load up on on produce. Think of the, the other options, meat, noodles, rice, etc. as sort of your side dishes. Um, second one is really to the point of waste. The best way to avoid waste in takeout is at the point of purchase. So if you know you're not going to eat that, the whole carton of rice or you don't want the pita bread or you don't want the naan or whatever it is, then just in the notes or even often you can, um, you can opt out of it. Do that so that it's not coming into your house in the first place and then you're going to waste it. Um, the other big thing I would mention is, we talked about small and local, that's really important, versus the more of the chains just at this particular time, um, given their slim margins and the fragility that many of them are facing. The other big thing is doing your research ahead of time to which restaurants um, are really uh, supporting the values you want to see. Fair wages, for example, uh, there's a great list from the Rock Opportunity, the Restaurant Opportunity Center United, that's high road restaurants that offer fair wages, um, a lot of restaurant worker rights issues are coming forth right now in, in light of everything going on. And, and that's a way you can support things like minimum wage or fair wage, as well as sick pay and other uh, benefits. Uh, you can also find out which restaurants purchase meat uh, rates without antibiotics. Consumer Reports has a, a scorecard. And that's actually more for, for those who maybe don't have as many local options um, or independent options and, and are relying more on chains. Um, Um, So you can, you can look for options like that as a way to make responsible choices even during this time when you are uh, ordering delivery and takeout.
1: So your suggestion is that we do our homework, which is a really, really good point that we do have the power through our pocket to make these choices. There's we're almost out of time. And I wanted to get to one more correlation that you make in your book, which at the time it was published had probably no idea about coronavirus, but the connections Mm. between this crisis that we find ourselves in, and the climate crisis, from a food perspective, Mm. talk a little bit about that.
3: Yes, definitely. Well, to the point on silver linings, it's really interesting, right? Because we're in a crisis, we're in an emergency, a state of emergency. And that is a rallying cry that is in some ways unifying and uniting people in ways they haven't been united around a common cause or a common new normal, um, at least in, in most of our lifetimes. And climate is similarly an emergency, it's a crisis. And as soon as we hopefully weather um, this immediate Corona crisis, that climate crisis is still going to be waiting for us. But this is not about doomsday. This is actually about the opportunity we all have um, three times a day and with our households as a multiplier effect um, to take a really powerful steps for climate action through our food choices. This is an often overlooked area of opportunity. We think about solar panels and driving electric vehicles and so forth. Um, but the two most effective things you can do are wasting less food and eating plant-rich diets. That's also called flexitarian or plant-forward or plant-centric. Um, mostly it just means the majority of your foods come from the ground, come from plant-based foods um, and or come from plant-based sources. So those two things alone, as well as supporting soil health um, through organic and increasingly regenerative practices, knowing your farmer, knowing your food. Those uh, will go a really long way in sequestering carbon and really trying to, to. Uh, speaking of flattening the curve, something we're used to, really draw down the, the ever rising uh, global temperature. So I'm excited about how quickly folks have changed habits in all kinds of ways from hand washing to social distancing to new greetings to checking labels. And I think that means we actually really can uh, shift our habits in ways that are going to help address that other crisis that's just around the corner to save our planet.
1: Well, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And we either adapt or perish, you know, and so we want to live, we want to thrive. To learn more about the work of Sophie Egan and her book, How to Be a Conscious Eater, making food choices that are good for you, others, and the planet, please visit sophieegan.com and on Twitter at Sophie Egan M. Sophie, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you
3: so much for having me. Be well. You
1: too. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Rupi Aujla and Sophie Egan, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day.
0: Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere. From the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUU Radio Malibu.net and is available on PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.